Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Women are often rendered invisible by history. This is partially due to the gaze of the historian, but it's also partially due to the sources. We just simply don't have some types of written sources about women. However, the book we'll be discussing today, Mary Houghton, Performance, Gender Bending, and Subversion in Ottoman Intellectual History, does something quite innovative. It looks at poetry, poetry written by women, uh, and one woman in particular, uh, to uncover gender and and women in Ottoman history. So we'll be talking today to Didem Havliolu, who is instructor of Asian and Middle Eastern Studies at Duke. Her interests include modern and Ottoman, uh, modern Ottoman language and literature, Islamic aesthetics, women and gender in the Middle East, women writers in the intellectual history of the Middle East. She received her PhD from the University of Washington and is the author of, again, today's uh, topic of conversation, Mihri Houghton, Performance, Gender Bending, and Subversion in Ottoman Intellectual History, out 2017 from Syracuse University Press. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. So we always start off with a bit of a biographical question. How did you come to the study of Ottoman history? What's your intellectual biography, so to speak? Well, I wish I could say one day I had a dream like Evliya Çelebi and found my calling. Well, it's not true. It was um, it, it was just a coincidence. Um, I I studied uh, Arabic la- Arabic and English literatures for my undergraduate, and I had no further plans for for graduate school. Um, and and while I was a junior at Bilkent University in Ankara, I was working uh, for the University Journal. Uh, writing a column uh, for new publications and interviewing with visiting scholars, similar to this podcast, but in, in, in written form. Uh, and But then I took a class from uh, Talat Halman. And uh, in this class, um, I, I, I listened lectures from uh, prominent scholars, uh, such as Haile uh, Linaljuk, J.M. Dilchin, and Walter Andrews. Uh, so I was very lucky, um, and I did an interview with uh, Walter Andrews, and uh, and fascinated by his take on Ottoman literature. Uh, I was fascinated because I I grew up uh, in a Kamalist uh, family uh, with no interest uh, in the Ottoman past, so this was my first expo- exposure uh, to the field. Then I spent my uh, senior year in uh, UC Santa Cruz, where I took my uh, first gender and sexuality course uh, from Carla Frechero, uh, which was fascinating again. Um, and by then, uh, I had developed the interest to work on Ottoman history and gender, and I, I, and, and I applied to uh, do my master's and PhD at University of Washington, um, and I did it. And then I continued at Harvard's CMES as a postdoctoral fellow, um, so I was trained uh, as an Ottomanist uh, with a particular interest in 
language and issues of gender. So one of the things I love about your book is that it's an intellectual history that does it through poetry. And it also sort of functions as biography for this 15th century Ottoman poetess, Mehdi Hatun. How did you discover her? Well, I I didn't discover her, but I found out about her uh, very early on during uh, the first semester of my um, MA uh, while I was doing my readings. Um, and this is early 2000s. And I was struck by how little we knew about women. And and there it was, uh, this woman called Mihri was mentioned in all of uh, early modern Teskires, the the biographical dictionaries uh, from the 16th century. Uh, And one particular uh, Ashik Celebi in his uh, Teskirete Shuara, um, he was uh, mentioned, uh, mentioned, you know, he was talking about uh, Mihri. Um, in in a lengthy entry, uh, and and this was copied over and over until uh, today. And so the story about her didn't exceed a, a couple of pages. Um, and even though she had a divan, a, a poetry collection uh, intact in and four manuscript copies, uh, we didn't know anything else about her because it, because nobody studied her. Um, so I knew I wanted to work on her text and and, and work on her um, and on her story, uh, but it required a long process, which started with a uh, diligent work on the text, um, and I used uh, the help uh, the help with the help of digital technologies, um, and so I deciphered the text first. But then the real question raised, of course, how can one give meaning to this text? Uh, so um, there were ways to read and understand male writers, but no one had just uh, had any suggestions uh, of reading a woman. Uh, so so the, the the struggle or the adventure started there. Um, so I I, I, I I met with her really early on in my um, discovery of the field um, in a way that um, not discovering women and asking the question now where are they? It all started like that. So before we dig into the meat of the book further, we are talking about poetry. So I was wondering if you could read us a line of Mehrington's poetry to start us off. Um, sure. This is a great idea. And I'd like to read um, the Ottoman Turkish first, if you don't mind. Um, so this is a very famous um, uh, few lines, actually, not a couple, but a few lines from, uh, from a famous poem. Uh, it goes like this. Çünkü nakıs aklı olur dirler Nisa, her sözün mazur tutmaktır reva. Liki mihri dayının zannı budur, bu sözü der ol ki kamil usludur. Bir müennes yeğdürür ki mehlola, bin müzekerden ki ol na ehlola. Bir müennes yek ki zihni pak ola, bin müzekerden ki bi idrak ola. So the English rendering is, um, since they say women lack reason, all their words should be excused. But as for Mihri, her well-wisher's supposition, as well as what an intelligent person would say, is this. A capable woman is much better than a thousand incapable men. A clear-headed woman is much better than a thousand muddle-headed men. So the, this is the, probably the most popular of her poetry because, because it appears in almost all of the encyclopedia entries um, and, and he, as, you, as you hear she addresses the concept 
that women lack reason. And based on the hadith, um, and, and it appears in Bukhari and Hajjaj, that women are deficient in reason and religion. And it was a popular hadith used to prevent uh, women's education and participation in intellectual fields. And so, so there are many women writers that I discovered um, um, challenge this hadith. Uh, so Mihri is not the only one. And, and as um, Islamic feminism suggested, um, these women challenged anything, including a sound hadith uh, by, by, by constructing logical arguments. And this is, this is, an, this is an example from her. So I, okay, first off, thank you for that. That was wonderful. And I'm glad you read it in both languages and sort of paid due diligence to the the, the, the prosaic no, nature of Turkish um, and the internal rhyme to the language. So I know that when I'm always explaining, whenever I explain Arabic poetry, I normally have to explain that it, it takes a certain form and shape and a certain type of rhythm. So what does poetry look like in the early modern Ottoman setting? And what did a poet look like? Sort of, what was their social function? Right. This is a great question because it's really important to uh, to think about uh, when we say poetry. It's really different uh, today, and it looked very different um, then. Uh, and I'm not only referring to the language, subject matter, or the aesthetics, um, because first of all, it was not composed to be written and read in a, from a piece of paper. It's a really different concept. Uh, it was composed to be performed in majlises, um, the court gatherings. Uh, so poetry was an integral part of intellectual socialization. Um, and the guests of such gatherings uh, could um, get into poetic dialogue. So you, so you can imagine lots of memorization uh, and the rhyme scheme and, um, is very important. Uh, and 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 we we hear about these um, anecdotes uh, from the Tesquires um, as they all tell stories about the Mejlis gatherings. As for the poet, um, and the poet could be anybody actually, as as most of these people had other jobs. Uh, they could be military judges, uh, imams, or the sultan himself. Most most sultans had poetry poetry collections. Um, they could be anyone. Uh, and one of the poets I talked about in this book, Nejati Bey, uh, was a former uh, slave and had no uh, formal education. It was not necessary to have a madrasa education, for instance, uh, but it was necessary to, to, to receive some sort of uh, training from a master. So any kind of traditional art, it was learned through matri- uh, master apprenticeship um, so, um, so this this is this is you know interesting, uh, especially when we think about women uh, in this field. Um, so they because they couldn't attend madrasas. Uh, one common misconception is that they wouldn't be educated, um, or th- so that they couldn't be poets or they couldn't be included in intellectual fields. Well, Mihri's story um, suggests that uh, they could. Um, so more important than uh, this sort of formal education was networking. Um, it was more important than anything else, as the poets uh, had to attend certain people's majlises to prove themselves there and form friendships and connections, so to find a patron. 
And in fact, people traveled from one majlis to another to find patrons or they moved with their patron to another city. So, so this could be an advantage for a woman or disadvantage. It depends how we look at it because we are now talking about um, um, socialization uh, of, uh, of poetry or like how poetry was performed in social circles. So Mehri was certainly a rare occurrence being a female poet, and, and you emphasize this by noting that she's one of the few female poets mentioned in the Tezkides or the biographical dictionaries. So whenever a woman enters a field that is male-dominated, some expect there's an expectation of imitation and, and not imi- innovation, so that she imitates men and doesn't really innovate the craft for her own or contribute something to the profession or the craft she's engaging in, which I don't necessarily think is very fair to women. I think it's downright unjust. Um, so how do we understand Mihri in the context of a male-dominated field? And how much continuity and rupture can we find with the poetry writing tradition contemporary to her in her writing? Right. Um, so yes, she was definitely part of the male-oriented tradition. Otherwise, I believe we wouldn't know of her. Uh, if she followed a completely different tradition, we wouldn't have any way of knowing her. Um, so, uh, but the way I conceptualize this tradition is uh, that um, it is a construct, a game, so to speak, that all players had well-established roles. So the lover and the beloved or the poet and the audience. So it's a performance and anybody could join in as long as they could perform the um, prescribed roles. Uh, for instance, we know both the lover and the beloved are supposed to be male, um, but one of them, the lover, is manly, and the other, the beloved, is coquettish. I mean, it's, uh, so, so that's, that's the behavior. In other words, a man could take one of those roles, uh, depending on his age and social status. So therefore, the discourse was male-dominated because it was practiced mostly by men. Uh, but there was nothing inherently wrong to take different roles, uh, and both for uh, for a man or a woman. And in this case, like men could take uh, either the lover or the beloved, the roles of those. Um, so, but likewise, a woman could take uh, the role of the lover. Um, so Mihiri shows how a woman could perform poetry as a speaking subject, and she was very well received. And at the same time, because she took the role of the poet, which was almost always performed by a man, she was subversive. And that's why she generated a rupture. So, you know, within the uh, tradition, so within, you know, although she remained in the tradition, she created this rupture, a rupture that um, allows us to capture uh, a glimpse of the construct of the tradition. Uh, in other words, she allows us to see the structure from the margins because she holds the marginal role. So one of the main sources about Mehri Hotun is the Teskire genre, which you already alluded to many different times um, at the biographical dictionaries. And these are main, these are written by men. Um, so how did her contemporaries, poets or otherwise, receive her? And how did they understand her as a female poet? Well, yes, um, this is an interesting question because even though she was subversive, she was very uh, well-received both during her lifetime and after. As a curious incident, um, she's one of the only three women poets in the 16th century in the historical documents. And then until 19th century, women, uh, there we don't have any, uh, we don't see any women in these documents. They disappear. 
And why did they suddenly accept women in 16th century, at least in the written world, uh, but just for a short period of time? Uh, so this was very interesting for me, and I really uh, thought about it and tried uh, to uh, come up with uh, answers. Uh, my, my proposition goes along with the uh, earlier suggestions about uh, the centralization projects of the 16th century in the Ottoman Empire. It's the time to claim Ottomanness uh, as opposed to the Persian world, uh, which had been influencing Ottoman intellectual circles by then. Uh, in other words, this is a turning point in Ottoman history that we see new production of knowledge that uh, focuses on Ottomanization um, in, in reference or as opposed to the Persian world. Um, so, for instance, I talked about Teskires, right? So it's, you know, it's coming, they are coming in the 16th century, mid-16th century the first time. Uh, but we have similar um, works in the Arab and the Persian world, specifically the ones that they copy or um, were influenced was Jami's or Devlet Shah's Teskires, which all included women. Uh, so for the Ottomans, uh, women are the, the desired new members of their intellectual world. However, even though uh, they were included, there is a clear discrepancy in the uh, Teskira writer's language that is sometimes not clear whether they support women or not. They use this um, elusive and, and sometimes erotic or sometimes sexually explicit language to suggest an exceptional inclusion of women. Or in other words, they don't know what to say about women, it looks like. So I, I have a you know, very long discussion about this because it's, I think, intriguing. Um, for instance, they make uh, sure to suggest that these women are not like other women, not like ordinary women. They are extraordinary so that's why they are included, right? So there's um, there's this like effort to include women, but the language shows they don't know what to do with it. So that was very interesting to reflect the um, the ideas of gender in the in the Teskere writers' um, writing as well. Um, so contextualizing literature and intellectual content gives us another layer of meaning, and this often manifest in the social history of any given writer or thinker. And in the case of Mehdi, we have this wonderful, you very well detail, the, um, the Mejlis. The Mejlis. Um, so can you explain to us how she, what exactly a Mejlis is and how she functioned within it? Um, sure. Um, I, I think about um, Mejlis practice where is uh, as as in the heart of the matter, as everything uh, from education to production of art happened in these gatherings. And this is particularly important when we consider gender or women uh, in the intellectual, intellectual circles, um, uh, as the Mejlis circles. And how was it possible for a woman to physically enter into a Mejlis, for instance? Was the gender segregation strictly enforced in these gatherings or not? Um, and I think most probably they were not homogeneous, all these images in different places. It really depends on the host, the city, the time period. Um, and there's no way of telling what was actually happening there because these are like semi-private um, gatherings. What we can say, uh, they definitely varied uh, and some included women as Mihri and other women poets, uh, few other women poets approve it. 
there must be female majlises too, um, but we don't know much about them either uh, because it's not recorded in history. Uh, we know much about them later in history, like more 17th century, we know um, there are uh, poetry written for women, so which suggests female patronage too. Um, so uh, as for Miri, she came from a privileged family, very influential people in the province of Amasya. They are the founders of Halvetie branch in Amasya. So, uh, so they are very uh, you know, prominent in the city. Uh, and most probably she grew up uh, in and around the crown prince's palace. Um, some provincial towns, and in particular Amasya in this case, uh, were the um, intellectual hubs of the time. And I don't think it's a coincidence uh, we have all the first women writers from Amasya. That's interesting, I think. You know, it's, they, they all come from Amasya. So it has uh, a lot, um, it, this says a lot about the city. It looks like the city and the people were open to, uh, to women's participation in the Mejlises. So I've mentioned this several times already, but one thing I really enjoy about your book is that it sort of complicates this understanding of intellectual history because people tend to think of intellectual history being largely the purview of ideas, but not literature. And I disagree with that premise. And I'm thrilled that you're bringing literature and poetry specifically into the fold of intellectual history because this allows us to include Mehdi and other people like her. It's just this great move towards including women in intellectual history of this period in particular. So um, how did you read her poetry as intellectual history? Oh, this is a great question. I think, uh, first, we need to conceptualize poetry as the language of intellectual circles. Uh, it reflects the ideas of the time, uh, whether personal or, or political. They are part of forming relationships, networks, establishing control, and manipulation of power. Uh, for instance, a kaside, an ode or praise uh, composed for a sultan uh, for an occasion, uh, let's say celebration uh, of a religious festival, has much deeper uh, meanings when we situate it in its historical and political context. Um, poetry can work to legitimate a sovereign, and it has a cash value for the poets. So we have, um, for instance, palace registers uh, throughout Ottoman history showing the monetary awards or regular salaries that they received, that poets received. So it's very much uh, part of larger history. It's a matter of developing uh, reading strategies to bring out this information. So there are two things to consider, I think. Uh, first, uh, poetry embodies variety of other texts. It's not possible to understand poetry without considering its intertextual nature. Um, and second, there's no clear-cut boundaries between genres, specifically at this time. The clear-cut boundaries are in our modern minds. As we look at the texts of the early modern times, poetry and historical narratives are all intertwined, um, and so we see them together. In my book, I used a woman's uh, poems to trace her image as a woman in intellectual circles through various texts and, and including her own self-representation in her poetry to figure out constructions of gender at her time and place. What does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? Uh, tracing a narrative about the meanings of uh, gendered roles. 
in other words, um, these ideas don't have to be part of the cultural circulation. It would be interesting to do uh, that because, um, and but but it's I think it, it was difficult for me because I think our knowledge uh, of the um, ordinary uh, or pu- general public is very limited at this time. Uh, so instead, I'm talking about intellectual circles of the time and how the ideas of gender are developed around these circles and through the act of writing, uh, whether prose or poetry. So uh, we've touched upon all these themes of gender and social life within um, Mehri's life, but also her poetry. So I was wondering if you could give us an overview of the other themes in her writing. Um, I think um, the, the over arching theme um, in her writing um, is the process of legitimation of a woman poet. Um, She carefully aligns herself with certain people, prominent figures of her time, from the sultan or the crown prince to the celebrity poets. So she uh, presents a panorama of the intellectual circles of her time uh, and the networks uh, of her time. Um, so this is very interesting to me. So again, it reflects the um, the social nature uh, of poetry uh, and um, and and the, and these uh, and these circles. Another important part of her story is the city of Amasya, which plays a significant role in the making of her career. Um, she has many poems dedicated to the city. And, and which confirms um, some other studies uh, actually working on the urban centers. And these are the centers um, uh, or the places for intellectual circles. And she clearly shows her belonging to her city. So in other words, you know, all these overarching themes um, confirms the ideas uh, about um, what makes an intellectual, um, how the networks of the intellectual, and, uh, and, uh, and how it happens in the urban centers. So, so her poetry definitely uh, reflects that. Um, but also as a marginal poet, in terms of the numbers of the poets, uh, like most of them are uh, male, she's like by nature, like uh, it's, she's marginal in that sense. Um, she finds ways to carve herself a space within this tradition. So she remains in the t- tradition, but still finds a way to be a, a marginal poet. Uh, for instance, she compares herself to one of the female figures in the tradition, Zuleha, uh, from the Yusuf and Zuleha story. And it's, um, and I think, um, a rare female character as the pursuer of love rather than an object of love, just like herself. Um, and I don't think it's a coincidence that she personifies herself with Zuleha. Um, in other words, like you know, she's bringing examples from the tradition itself uh, to, to, you know, to prove her marginal uh, position. Uh, and similarly, she uses literary tools such as humor to refute her colleagues unwanted attentions, which would put her in the role of the beloved. She doesn't want to be a beloved who was always silent. So she clearly wants to be the speaker and the active uh, pursuer of love uh, in her poetry. So these are the um, main uh, themes that I, she, you know, it's, it's coming up uh, over and over again. No, it's such an accomplished study. I mean, particularly because the language skills, I mean, Ottoman is such a difficult task and you 
sort of make it look so effortless. Um, but also you bring in all these themes just and integrate them really well. She really is an agent of her own will um, in your portrayal of her. So I congratulate on that. It's really a groundbreaking study. So we, we always close the interview by asking sort of what projects are you currently working on? You alluded that you are working on several, with several digital tools and digital projects. Right, right. I've been involved in digital humanities from the beginning of my graduate studies, thankfully. Um, I worked um, in Ottoman text archive project and, and, and produced a digital, uh, digital text of Mihri's lyrical poems um, early on. And, and this was tremendously helpful for my research. I used it over and over again. Um, and now I'm uh, part of a collaborative initiative, um, the Baki Project, um, a large-scale collaboration uh, to transform the way to approach a manuscript. Um, we focus on the poet Baki uh, from 16th century, uh, the acclaimed sultan of poets um, during the so-called golden age. Uh, he was a regular at the Mejlises of Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent. Um, so he is this the celebrity of the uh, 16th century, like you know, some 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 people call the Shakespeare of Ottoman <laughs> literature. Uh, and 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 but this project, so that's probably why we we wanted to we wanted to focus on him because. Um, this project aims to create a, a multi-dimensional visualization of the history of Baki's texts, taking all its copies, many, many copy, copies that, uh, that are, that's out there into account. Uh, so this will allow scholars and, and then create an open, open access, um, um, you know, resource for the scholars. And so this will allow scholars to trace the many versions of the manuscripts, but most important, um, it will be possible to generate data such as, such as, um, word lists, clusters, and frequency tables. So, so all sorts of data, um, and it's very exciting. With, uh, with these, it's possible to, uh, to conduct large-scale close readings um, uh, of, a, of a very large um, manuscript collection because as the, as the, uh, as the text gets larger, it's, it's, it's really impossible to pay attention to small details. So we miss uh, a great deal of nuance in our readings. Uh, with the digital uh, technologies, it's now hopefully now possible to do that. And then later... Uh, contextualization, the findings, uh, and compare them to other uh, various texts. So this is a very exciting project right, right now for me that, you know, bringing me back to the, to play with the texts. Well, that sounds like a really fulfilling project and congratulations again on the book. Thank you so much. 